Amen. All right, well, I, uh, I will not be preaching in Chokwe uh, this morning. That was awesome, Ethan. And thank you, George. That was great. Looking forward to more interviews in the future. I, I just enjoyed uh, a, a very short visit, a road trip uh, yesterday. Uh, Bethy and I and David and uh, pastors and wives from across BC gathered together in Kamloops. Uh, yesterday, Friday night till Saturday, late afternoon, and we were uh, praying for God's direction in, in the furthering of his kingdom, in starting of new churches across BC and beyond. And uh, as some of you know that uh, a few years ago, uh, our friends uh, Austin and Leah started uh, a new church on Pender Island, and uh, about 10 years ago, Andrew and Rochelle planted in Trail, and this September, Andrew and Rochelle will be uh, starting a new church in Nelson, BC. And so we were praying for those things, but we were also praying for uh, wherever else. It was, it was a whole day and a half of just praying and listening, and it was so cool to hear how God is speaking to everyone. There's so many things that are confirmed, and I'm just excited for the future with that. Uh, we, we are continuing on our, our sermon series, going through the Bible. The Bible is the book that God has used to change billions of lives all around the world and across history. And we've been journeying through every book of the Bible, and we're continuing on in the prophetic writings. We're about almost halfway through the 12 minor prophets, or short shorter writings, the less understood prophetic writings. Last Sunday, David unpacked the books of Joel, Amos, and Obadiah, and he did a very well-done job there. And this morning, we're going to dive into the book of Jonah. Pun intended. You're welcome. All right, six important things to consider about the book of Jonah before we get going. Uh, Firstly, the book of Jonah is traditionally read publicly on the afternoon of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement and Repentance. Secondly, it's about a historical person and situation in a satirical narrative style. So again, it's important to read uh, the scriptures in, in, in accordance with their literary genre. You read poetry different than you read a historical writing, and this is satire. Uh, and so there's different ways of interpreting uh, which parts are hyperbole or whatnot, but it is, it is written with an intent uh, to make comments that maybe cut to the heart while getting you laughing. And so uh, it, there's, there's funny and ironic details all throughout. And usually kid books just focus on Jonah and the whale. whale. Which, we, it doesn't even say if it's a whale, it says a big fish. But yeah, maybe it's a whale, probably, probably not a goldfish, okay. But um, yeah, there, there's, there's much more to it than this big fish and Jonah. Uh, actually, the big fish has little coverage in the book, just one of the four chapters. Uh, chapter one, this is a little overview here. Chapter one, God calls Jonah to Nineveh. And, and it talks about his rebellion in, in accordance with that. Uh, there's pagan sailors who repent and they turn to God. So Jonah's like rebellious and then they're repenting. 
Uh, in chapter 2, Jonah is thrown into the sea. He takes a deep dive into the sea, swallowed by the big fish, and prays for deliverance. Chapter 3, Jonah semi-repents, goes to Nineveh and preaches, and the city truly does repent. In chapter 4, Jonah grumbles about Nineveh's repentance and the mercy of God. Uh, number four, interesting, important thing to consider. Uh, was this a real story? You know, okay, it's, it's historical person and situations and historical places, it's, but it's written in satire. Is this a real story? Uh, well, there's different ways of viewing that. And, and then people think, well, uh, this big fish or this whale, is that even possible? Would he just be destroyed by the, the stomach acids of this whale? Um, last year, Global News covered a report of a commercial lobster diver, Michael Packard, from Massachusetts, and he was swallowed by a humpback whale. And he, he reports afterwards, he survived, uh, but he wasn't there for three days. Uh, he thought to himself, okay, this is it. And uh, eventually, he ended up being spat out by the fish. He didn't taste very good. I think he, he didn't shower for a long time, and that served him well. Um, a blue whale can fit four to 500 people in its mouth. Whoa, that's, that's, that's a big church that could fit in there. Woo. Uh, half capacity, of course, in these days. Um, if God can provide a fish or a whale to swallow Jonah... He can preserve Jonah from the stomach acids, right? Is that, that true? If he can sovereignly call a fish to swallow Jonah, he can sovereignly preserve Jonah. Uh, like, you, you don't hear as many people question, well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're thrown into the furry, fiery furnace. I don't know, can they really survive the furnace? I don't know, what's the science behind that? This is the God of the universe, okay, guys? So if he can preserve Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a fiery furnace, like just dusting off you know, the ashes around them, they're fine. He can preserve Jonah in the belly of a big fish. Number five, it's the story of Jonah, son of Amittai. Remember, biblical names often have meaning attached to them, and it's pertaining to the story. Remember Hosea and Gomer's kids' names? Not my people and no mercy. Well, Jonah means dove or pigeon. I, I think maybe pigeon because he's not that smart. Um, but dove referring to peace. And uh, Amittai, his, his father, means true or faithful. But there's hardly anything in Jonah's character that calls out true peace or tr faithful peace. Number six. Prophet, he's a prophet to northern kingdom of Israel, but now in this story, he is a prophet to Nineveh, which is the capital city of Assyria. Assyria, as you may remember, is one of the superpowers that would eventually invade Israel and take them into captivity. So this was 20 to 30 years before the captivity from Israel, uh, Assyria. Jonah is told to go to Nineveh, this capital of this Assyrian empire, and it's, it's a superpower. And the, the expositor Bible commentary points out that this would have been a historic time uh, when Assyria was particularly weak. 
In between the death of one king and the establishment of a new one, Tiglath-Pileser III in the year 745 BC. And it was when Assyria was, I quote, engaged in a life and death struggle with the mountain tribes of Urartu and its associates of Manai and Madai in the north, uh, who had been able to push their frontier to within less than 100 miles of Nineveh. I, I don't know if that rings a bell to you, but like a, a big superpower who is kind of vulnerable and uh, they've got these other powers encroaching on their frontiers. And then you've got a prophet from this smaller place who they're threatened by this big superpower. He's told to go to the superpower city and proclaim God's message to them. That might lead to their preservation. Could you imagine a Ukrainian prophet going across the border into Russia? And this is before Russia would be invading but going into Russia and proclaiming to Putin and the people that God wants you to repent or else judgment's coming. Knowing that your message might actually preserve Russia, your enemies. You know what Jonah did? He went, no, he went, he went the opposite way. He went to Tarshish. Um, but that's not the end of the story as we know. But let's, let's pray and ask for God to speak to us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this book in the Bible. Uh, you teach us more about yourself. You reveal things about ourselves, and we just thank you for your mercy. We thank you for how you speak. You speak to Jonah. You speak to us. And pray, Lord, that you would speak Speak by the power of your Holy Spirit into our hearts. Change us. Lead us in your way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God mercifully calls out to us for us to call out for God's mercy. That is the main point of this message, that God mercifully calls out to us for us to call out for his mercy. Let's look at this call and response in this book of Jonah. It's, it's, it's really, it's a, it's a constant call and response. God is calling out to his people, hoping that they would respond to him. And we were singing, Give Thanks to God, which is kind of a call and response. The worship team sings a part, and then we respond, Give thanks to God, for he's good. And God is calling out with mercy, hoping that we would respond with mercy, a call for mercy, or a thanks in mercy. God calls out to us. The word call, or called, happens eight times in this short book. It's relating to God telling Jonah to call out against Nineveh, or the response of people calling out to God. So he says, go, Jonah, go to Nineveh and call out against it. 
Or the, the sailors, they called out to the Lord. Or, uh, again, uh, Jonah preaches and he calls out to Nineveh. And then the king and the people, they call out to God for mercy. God mercifully calls out and he appoints all things to call his people back to himself. He's appointing all sorts of things. He calls out to us by appointing, assigning many people and circumstances to show his mercy in hopes that we would respond by calling out to him. This, this word is repeated several different times. It's the word yeman. It's the Hebrew word yeman. Say yeman. It's like, yeah, man. And it's God in the ESV and the CSB translation says appointed. NIV says God provided. The King James Version says God prepared. It has to do with assigning, ordaining, aligning things so that these circumstances would happen intentionally. Not a random universe, a very defined, planned out, purposeful universe meant to call God's people back to himself. God is using the circumstances in your life to call you closer and deeper into him. God is using the hard and painful things in this world that we see on the news so that people might be shaken out of their complacency and come back to him. God mercifully called out to Nineveh through Jonah. He appointed Jonah. He's the only Old Testament prophet told to go to another nation to preach repentance, not just judgment. Uh, last, last week, David uh, preached on Joel Amos Obadiah, and, um, and it was the book of Obadiah that was being preached to against Edom of judgment. Uh, but here, it's not just judgment, but also an opportunity for repentance and salvation. God mercifully called out to Jonah through the storm. So God is also calling out, not just to Nineveh, but he's calling out to Jonah to get Jonah's attention. He calls out through a storm. Uh, in, in chapter 1, verse 4, it says that God, the Lord sent out, the K, KJV and NIV translation says that God sent out a great wind into the sea. Uh, the Christian Standard Bible says that God threw a great wind onto the sea, and the English Standard Version says that God hurled a great wind upon the sea. Uh, either way, God is behind it. God sent it, he threw it, he hurled the, the, the wind. Uh, actually, it's the same word as when the, the sailors, they hurled Jonah out of the boat to stop the storm. But God is sovereign over the chaotic water. The sea was known as this place of chaos. But God is actually even sovereign over the chaos. God uses chaos, even turns it for good purposes to call his people back to himself. God mercifully called out to Jonah through a fish. Chapter 117 says, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of of the fish three days and three nights. God mercifully called out to Jonah in chapter four, verses six to eight. It says, 
the Lord God appointed, say appointed, appointed, appointed a plant and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly pleased with this plant. He's just loving this shade. And then right after that, it says in verse 7, when dawn came the next day, God appointed uh, a worm that attacked the plant and it withered. And then verse 8, as the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted and he wanted to die. Do you notice how God appoints good things and bad things to get his people's attention? Was the fish a good thing or a bad thing? Because you could see it as like it's part of God's judgment. He's like sealed in this like aquatic tomb. But it's also the means in which he was preserved for three days and then brought back onto dry land. And then you, you've got this plant and it's, it's, it's this pleasant thing. And God's wanting to get his attention. He's speaking through that. And, and then God really is getting his attention as the plant withers because of this worm and the scorching hot wind. The first half of the book is Jonah's downward descent. Jonah goes down. It says he goes down to Joppa. And then he goes down into the boat. He goes under in the lower level of the boat to sleep while everyone is freaking out because of the storm. He's like, I don't even want to deal with this. I'm running away from God. And then he goes, he tells them that he's responsible for the storm because God's like trying to get his attention. And then so they throw him overboard. He goes down into the depths of the sea, and then he goes down into the belly of the fish. It's a downward descent, deeper and deeper. And in the depths, God reaches out. God calls to him in the depths of his despair, his hopelessness. God calls to him for a response. God calls for your response when you feel like you're in the depths, when you're going deeper and deeper into depression, into discouragement. He is getting your attention, not to stay there, but to respond, that he would bring you up. He calls for your response. And how do you interpret the circumstances of your life? That God has abandoned you or that God is getting your attention? That he's calling you to him, calling you closer and deeper to him. God appoints and allows all sorts of things to get our attention, to prevent us from the greater danger of completely running away from him. What will it take for God to get your attention? Forest fires or floods? a global pandemic, wars and rumors of wars, family tragedy. What will God, what, what does it take to get your attention? God loves you so much that he'll even allow painful things to happen because he loves you and he wants something good to happen in your life, even through the bad things that you would turn to him. 
because he knows it's far more destructive to let you feel safe in the illusion of safety, going your way away from him. So finally in chapter 3, God gets Jonah to repent, or at least somewhat repent. And Jonah calls out against Nineveh. He finally, he gets spat out of the, the belly of this big fish on, eventually gets to dry land. He, he starts wandering over to Nineveh, the capital city of this superpower, and he calls out against Nineveh. But his message, it's both incredibly brief and ambiguous. It's brief. He called out against Nineveh with eight words. That's a short sermon. I, 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 I would have trouble preaching such a short sermon. Uh, and this is what he said. In 40 more days, Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. That was his message. It's ambiguous. The world word biblical commentary points out that, first, this word was passed around among the populace, and it would be automatically it wouldn't be clear whether Jonah was warning about only the enclosed city, the Al-Ninua, uh, this is the uh, Assyrian language, or the entire district, the Ninuaki, uh, that would be overthrown by God. He didn't, it wasn't clear if he was saying, oh, just the, the cat, like the small, the core, the citadel has to repent, or everybody's got to repent. Does the government have to repent, or do all Canadians have to repent? Secondly, it was ambiguous. The people might wonder whether the mention of 40 days was to allow time for repentance, like a warning, or simply to assure that the divine judgment was not far off. 40 days, you will be overturned. Or 40 days and you'll be overturned. Repent. And thirdly, it was ambiguous that the word overthrow in Hebrew and in, in the Assyrian language was somewhat ambiguous. The term can signify an overthrow, a judgment, a turning upside down, a reversal, a change, a deposing of royalty, or a change of heart. See how ambiguous that could be? In other words, Jonah's words in Assyrian, just as in Hebrew, could mean both, in 40 more days, Nineveh will be overthrown in judgment, or in 40 more days, Nineveh will have a change of heart. They will be changed. And we have to remember that these words are not what Jonah originally composed, but they're exactly what God, Yahweh, told him to say. So though, though it was a brief and ambiguous message, uh, the king and country and even cattle, even the cattle, uh, responded in repentance and called out for mercy. With this short little message. God is trying to hammer away at Jonah throughout the whole book and this short, ambiguous message and this pagan people repent. God mercifully calls out to us for us to call out for his mercy. He wants us to call out to him. 
In chapter 3, verse 6, it says, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. This visible act of mourning and of grief and of repentance. He, verse 7, he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast Herd nor flock taste anything. They're going to fast. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered in sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So the king had a longer message than Jonah's. When God saw, in verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented from the disaster that he had said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. So here's the irony. God sends a prophet a religious prophet to a rebellious people to repent. The people repent, but the prophet rebels. Who is God calling you to speak to? And will you follow or will you be rebelling against him for some reason? God wants to appoint you to speak to others with life and hope. But are we reluctant to go for one reason or another? What holds you back? God mercifully calls out to us and through us so that we might call out for his mercy. Not only was Jonah reluctant to preach to Nineveh, but he was really ticked off when they repented. He just was irate. Chapter 4, verse 1, Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. Furious! Why? Verse 2, he prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That, that's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I know that you are a gracious and compassionate God slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and the one who repents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Wow. Some commentators have said that Jonah's like bipolar. He's, he's got some deep pleasure in this plant giving him shade and then deep displeasure over Nineveh repenting. And he's, he's, he's like suicidal now. He's, God, I can't handle it. The repenting, you're gracious and compassionate. Kill me now. Wow. Why was Jonah so angry? What's wrong, Jonah? He wants justice. He wants what's fair. They did evil, they sinned, and they deserve destruction. He wants God to bring justice to deal with their sin. 
But he doesn't want God to deal with his own sin. He just wants to be done with. He doesn't want their evil to be overturned. He wants them to be completely overturned in judgment. Jonah's life is a disaster. He's overthrown by his own sin. Maybe he's not willing to change his ways to deal with his evil inside. He'd rather die. He feels hopeless. And he feels out of reach for any grace for himself. He thinks, how could God forgive that city, that empire? And how could God forgive me? Is there anything in your life that you, you have this thought of, how could God ever forgive me? The problem with Jonah is that he is not grasping God's grace and mercy. Is there ever a time where you say, God could forgive them for that, but how could he forgive me for this? Or I can't forgive myself because I don't have grace and mercy. Like Jonah, we need to grasp mercy. To call out for it, to grasp it, to take it in. He acknowledges that God is merciful, but he doesn't apply that understanding to himself or to Nineveh. The thing is that you can know things about God, but not know him personally. You can know that God is gracious, but if you're critical of others, or judgmental, harsh, you're demonstrating to them and to yourself that this isn't a reality in your heart. The core of the gospel is a gospel of grace and mercy. And so you could be living in a Christian home, going to church your whole life, be a very good religious person and not grasp the, the gospel of grace and mercy. Like Jonah, you and I need to soak in the reality that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and relents from sending disaster. God is, spends a little bit of time to get Nineveh to repent, but a lot of time he just keeps chiseling in to Jonah, just keeps getting that message in, and it's taking the whole book. And you don't even know if it fully gets through to him at the end. Because Jonah is like more concerned about this plant, and God's like, shouldn't I care more than this plant? I, I should care for all these 120,000 people, right, Jonah? For all these people and cattle? And that's like the end. That's how it ends, abruptly. Who do you identify with more? The, the pagan people who need to repent and call out for mercy? Or to maybe the reluctant prophet, religious but unwilling to preach to the people? Self-righteous, thinking that others deserve judgment. It's only when you see how much mercy you need that you're able to give as much mercy as God wants. So only when you see how much mercy you need 
that you are able to give as much mercy as God wants. If you know someone who's crooked, abusive, lying, manipulative, you might see them facing natural consequences or even divine judgment and think they had it coming. Yeah, that's what they deserve. But you need to deeply grasp the grace and mercy of God found in Jesus to say, Father, forgive them. Bring them to repentance and show them your mercy. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 40 to 41, Jesus is answering the Pharisees who are interrogating him, who are looking for a sign of his divinity and his authority. And he says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Again, we know that Jesus was saying that all of the scriptures for centuries were pointing to him, to his arrival, his life ministry, his death and resurrection. Something greater than Jonah has arrived. Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the greater Jonah. Jonah was reluctant. Jesus was purposeful and intent in obedience to the Father. Jesus was appointed by the Father to call people back to God. The storm of God's righteous wrath has been stirring, and so Jesus, when he, he, he came to this point, he was voluntarily willing to go to the cross, to be crucified. But he said, he said, Lord, if there's any other way, remove this cup of judgment from me. But in the end, your will be done. And so Jesus willingly took on this judgment, the storm of God's wrath. And he, was, he threw himself into the storm so that the storm would not destroy us. Unlike Jonah, Hebrews 12 says of Jesus that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Jonah was in despair, in in deep fury because of their repentance, but Jesus saw joy in it, saw joy in your repentance, saw joy in you calling out for God's mercy, and that was made possible in his death on the cross. And he, on the cross, cried out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing to the people who were crucifying him. He makes God's mercy and justice possible on the cross. He is punished for our sins. Whoever trusts in him turns from their sins, repents, and finds their hope in him. He would pour out mercy and grace. This is the grace of God, that he would pour out mercy on us if we repent. 
Cynthia was a, a, a law-abiding Christian, grew up in a Christian church her whole life. She was really good at dotting all the, the I's, crossing her T's. She was religiously right. She, she knew all the answers to the Bible questions. She felt very righteous subconsciously in her own deeds. And when she saw her neighbors and saw all the, the things that they did wrong, she said, judgment's coming for them. Her workers, she saw how they, they were doing all these evil things. They would talk about the weekends and how, how much debauchery they, they were involved in. And she thought, they're going to get what they deserve. And she looks out on, on the news. She sees the evil going on in the world. She sees the destruction because of nations warring against. And people who are doing these evil deeds. And she says, well, there's going to be justice. And they are going to get what they deserve. But then she heard the gospel in a fresh way. She came to grasp the mercy of Jesus. God gave her revelation, an understanding of her own sin for her self-righteousness, for her critical spirit, for her judging of others and not leaving judgment up to God, and for, for her, her ways of lacking compassion and grace for others. And she went down to her knees. She cried out to God, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I've been so ruthless with other people. I haven't seen how I need your mercy, but I need it. God, have mercy on me. And when she felt the mercy of God come into her heart, her heart was overturned. And as she'd called out to God, she had this new view of the world with this joy of going to others and declaring there is mercy available for them. Yes, they have sinned, and they need to turn from that and turn to God. But the good news is that God is welcoming them with open arms, ready to pour out mercy. Her heart was overturned and it led to the change of other people's hearts. Do you sit here aware of the mercy that you desperately need? Or are you perhaps still like Cynthia who's still not quite understanding how much you need mercy, how the people around you need mercy? Are we entitled or are we thankful for God's grace? If it this doesn't quite ring true yet. If you're not like, yes, I need mercy. We need to soak in the reality of the gospel. Why did Jesus come to live, to die, and to rise? Because we desperately need it. I find it interesting that this past Tuesday marked the first day of Lent, in which many church traditions spend 40 days to prepare their hearts to celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection. Forty days to consider these things, to overturn their hearts. 
And this past Wednesday is known as Ash Wednesday. And the Ninevites had 40 days before the city was overturned and they poured ashes on themselves. Would you consider putting something aside in your life this season to make space for prayer, for seeking God, thanking Him for His mercy, just coming closer to Him and just grasping that mercy, understanding what Jesus did on the cross for you? You just ask God, what, what is something that you would like me to put aside so I can just have a little more space of time with you, not running around busy, not occupied by distractions. That perhaps God would overturn our hearts in a new and fresh way. We would call out and thank God for his mercy. Thank God that he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relents from sending disaster. I'd like to invite the worship team to come up. And would you pray with me? Let's, let's respond. Let's, let's call out to God. Father, our gracious and merciful Father, Lord, we want to respond to you. We want to respond to your mercy right now. Lord, you see our hearts. We, we invite you. Do a deep work in our hearts, Lord. Call us closer and deeper to you. Where we've never experienced your mercy in our hearts, Lord, pour out your mercy. Lord, help us to understand how much mercy we need. Lord, for many times we're blind to our own sins and the severity of it. I thank you that you are so willing and ready to pour out your mercy. I thank you that 1 John chapter 1 says that when we confess our sins, you are faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you that this is available in Jesus Christ. Amen.